<laughs> so, well, we had a little glitch, but we're back. So, I've got Reed Harrison. Is that pronounced Duquois? Or do you guys uh, Americanize your last name? It's, uh, it's actually it's, it's Ducro. So, it's French. My dad's French. It is Ducro. Yeah. Okay, got it. Okay. Yes, and that is, right, that's about, obviously, it's extremely French. Uh, so, you were just telling me about how it is that you became a, a, a Bronco at Boise State and what, what it was about that staff, that place, that tradition that stood out because you had other options in other places you could have gone. Yes. Well, I had went up to a camp. So how I got my offer is I went up to a camp during the summer of my junior year leading into senior year, and I did really well at that camp, and then they offered me after. But going up there, uh, I think a good thing that they do is during their camps, they have players that are currently there working to, I guess, kind of get a feel for the coaches as well as um, just get some extra money on the side for summer jobs. Um, So... Going up there, I think I just really fell in love with how they interacted with their players, how the players interacted with the coaches, um, the amount of fun that they had, and as well as the community, because Boise is Idaho's pro team. Like, they don't have an NBA team, an MLB yeah. team, an NFL right. team. So they Boise State football is... They've got, they've got minor league hockey, minor yeah. league baseball, and Boise State. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. And Boise State football trumps all of that. <laughs> so going up there, it kind of gave me the same feel that I have down here in Texas because the whole town shuts down if there's a game. Like I don't know when the last time they didn't have a packed stadium, um, if not sold out. So just going up. There I don't think you were born. Feel. Yeah. <laughs> right. So just just going up there and getting that feel from them. Um, as well as the players and the staff and then the school and the community. It just kind of felt like the perfect fit to go there out of high school. Okay. And everyone always talks about the quote-unquote welcome to college football moment. For some people, it's uh, physical. For some people, it's mental. For some people, it's, you know, just trying to navigate, you know, this new world where I get my hair cut, all that stuff. For you, what was yeah. the wake-up call, the welcome to college football moment when it suddenly hits you, oh, this is different. This isn't high school anymore. I think it was the first day of fall camp. We got the playbook. Um, and it was, it was just the first install. And it was like, I think it was like 15 or 20 plays or something like that. And it was just a huge binder. And like you could see like each day how many plays we're going to install and coverages and stuff. And I was just like, we did not have this in high school. <laughs> so it was, it was it was a lot it was a lot more to remember, but it was it was definitely a cool experience. Uh, just made me have to focus even more to learn the coverages and stuff. So okay, and where where were you on the depth chart when you first got there? And at what position did they originally try? They had me at corner, and I. Uh, I, I don't I really don't remember maybe third third or fourth string um, corner okay. because we had like all the freshmen and stuff kind of like in the same pool and then you had the upperclassmen and stuff that obviously had like their spot more solidified than freshmen because we're new there so right okay and, and who were the guys I mean obviously I know it's a pretty tight knit group altogether but usually uh-huh. even within 
a family, there's certain people, even within the family, that spend more time around each other. Who were your guys, the people to whom you were most drawn and were most around you? Yeah. So out of the freshman group, I was roommates with DeAndre Pierce, Jalen Walker, and then Robert Lewis. That was my freshman roommates uh, throughout the whole freshman year. And then kind of like the – you know how people have like the older guy that they kind of like gravitate towards? Well, for me, that was Jonathan Moxie. He's he's with the Calgary Stampede now. He was with the Cardinals for a little bit and then the Buccaneers. Um, So that was kind of like my mentor, so to speak, while I was at Boise. Okay. And what what do you think it was about him that – made him someone to whom you looked up and, you know, someone that you felt could help you make this transition. And I don't think most people understand, unless they've gone through what you've gone through, what a transition, especially at a, you know, what I'll call a power six program like um, yeah. like Boise. I don't think people quite get, even if you, I mean, you come from, you know, a really impressive high school football background where you played a lot of dudes, but as you just mentioned, the mental side of the game, and there's some physical stuff too, but the mental side of the game is an enormous leap. Uh, What was it about about Jonathan Moxley that you think made that someone to whom you wanted, you know, to, I want to say follow around, but it'd be clearly someone to whom you felt there was something, a kinship and something you could draw from him. Oh, it it was three things, I think. Um, well, one, he was a very focused guy uh, on and off the field. Like, he was um, he was obviously a cool dude, but you knew that he was, when he got into the facility and when he was watching film, he meant business and was trying to get to that next level, which I aspired to get to. Um, the second thing is he had that tenacity with him. He was my size. Well, I guess that's the third thing. Third thing, he's my size. Um, so that tenacity, right. that being my build, um, and he obviously had success at Boise. Like he was starting since he was a sophomore or something like that. Um, just seeing him have success and seeing his track record with being my size, I felt like if I could do what he did, then I could be a starter as well. Okay. Yes, yeah, makes perfect sense. Um, I'm a former military officer, and one of the things that we always – everything we do in the military is based on the critical buddy system. You never want any – we say yeah. if you're going to be wrong, be wrong together. Um, yeah. So um, we have a belief that hopefully having two people together makes it increases the chances of them figuring out the right thing to do and doing it the right way. But as you say, you know, never let your buddy be wrong by himself. If you're going to be wrong, be wrong together. Yeah. Uh, so you go through this crucible of being a freshman. Uh, it's a crucible in terms of time management, right? Uh, managing yeah. your body because the practices are not necessarily longer. I, mean, I don't know what your high school practices were like, but there, there's a level of intensity that's usually different yeah. between high school practices and collegiate practices. Uh, yeah. Talk to yeah. me about managing your mental and physical and other resources as you made this transition. Honestly, it's just something you have to – dive head first into and just kind of get used to it. Um, One thing I know for sure that I wasn't prepared for was fall camp. I guess I was prepared for it, but 
I wasn't prepared for how grueling it was with the hours. Yeah. They literally had you there from like 7 a.m. till like 9 p.m. And like we'd, we'd practice, yeah. practice for like two, two and a half hours, then have a workout, then watch film. But like they'd make, they'd make all that last the entire day. So you wouldn't have any free time. So that was definitely different. Um, but no, other than, um, I guess getting used to like the mental side of it, it's just repetition. Repetition and just not getting overwhelmed. So just kind of setting a schedule um, for yourself or setting a plan in place to help you achieve uh, to either playing or um, just continuing to grow, I guess, and being the best player you can. It's just really all about planning. Okay. And then you survive basically being a freshman, which is an accomplishment in and of itself. Now you get to be a sophomore, and things they say start to slow down. Tell me about what that was like, uh, moving into your second year there. What goals did you yeah. set for yourself, and how close do you think you came to hitting those goals? Yeah, well, I think it helped a lot, me playing a little bit my freshman year on special teams and then at the end of games. Um, that really helped benefit. That really benefited me in the sense that I was in – I had in-game experience or a little bit of in-game, in-game experience going into my sophomore year, so it wasn't just a whole new thing. Because, like, you still play. What I realized, I think, my sophomore year, um, that helped me take that next step um, to being better was that, one, um, I practiced against some of the best receivers in our conference, from like Cedric Wilson, who plays for the Cowboys now, uh, Sean Modster, just like different players like that, different good, really good players like that. Like if I can play against them, like I, I really don't fear anybody. Um, just kind of, it's really, it's, I think it's really more mental, having that mental confidence because physically, I feel like everybody's at the same level. Like there's obviously more people who are faster and stronger, but it's really more about the mental aspect of it that helps you succeed in the college world. Got it. Gotcha. And tell me what things did you notice about yourself? Uh, You know, you clearly grew. I mean, maybe not that much physically, but you grew as a player and as a person. What things did you notice, you know, looking at yourself from one year to the next? I noticed myself uh, gaining more confidence. Um, mentally, and then um, just, like, watching Mox, Jonathan Moxie and all the older guys uh, picking up on different ways to watch film and, like, what to pick up on, uh, different ways to practice, how to practice hard because it makes the game easier, just different stuff like that, uh, continually staying in the film room or continually watching film so it slows the game down even more. Um, just like learning like tricks and stuff like that to help the game become a lot more smoother. So like every play is not a new play, and you're kind of prepared for each play that comes. Okay. And as you came to the end of that season, there was clearly a lot of a lot of things going on uh, in your mind, and I guess to some extent even around the program. What was it that started in your mind the process of thinking about playing someplace else, and how did you manage yeah. your, I'll call it, re-recruitment process? Yeah, so 
I had played – so, okay, so let me go back. The defensive coordinator and the defensive backs coach that signed me there to Boise State left right when I signed. So the D.C. went to Arizona, and then the defensive back coach went to Utah State, and he's now at Texas Tech. So those guys left, and then the new D.C. was um, Coach Avalos, the D.C. at Oregon that was doing really well. Yes. Um, yes. Going, going into my sophomore season, um, they brought in a junior, junior college kid, six foot, 200 pounds, uh, could fly, but he just wasn't that intelligent in picking up the playbook-wise. Um, but they immediately started him. Um, so I kind of could tell that he wanted bigger guys. And also I looked at the 20... The 2017 class and like the corners they were bringing in, like his his first real recruiting class, um, and they were all like six one, six two corners. So I kind of tell that he wanted bigger guys. Um, so I was even supposed to start like I did, but the junior college kid that came in that they brought in uh, got suspended for um, violating team rules. Um, so I played the first four games, played against Troy, played against Washington State played New Mexico, and then um, played Virginia. And then going into that Virginia game, I was actually the highest-ranked guy um, as a PFF going into that Virginia game, and that was with Leighton Van Der Esch and, like, Sed Wilson and all that. So, I mean, I thought I was doing pretty well. So that Virginia game, about second quarter, I uh, went to make a tackle on a running back and then uh, got kind of like a minor concussion. And so I was out for the rest of the game. And then after that point, I didn't play a single defensive snap unless we were up by, like, 50 points. Um, and so I was just kind of confused um, on why I went from starting every snap to not playing at all. So each week I'd go in, I'd like, okay, I'm not going to worry too much. I'm going to just see what I can do, what I did wrong, and how I can fix it, right? So I go into the, the coach's office and ask him, hey, what do I need to work on for this week? I want to just... Just get in the game. You're like, hey, you need to work on this, this, and this. I was like, okay. So throughout the week, I worked on that, that, and that. And then the next week, it'd be something else. And then the next week, something else. So I was just like, okay, I really don't feel like I'm being given a fair shot here. Um, and I'm not the kind of guy that they wanted the corner position, which is fine um, because he's a DC. And they have the right that they're in pink. They have the right to make their own opinion and their own business decisions. Um, so after a couple of games went by, I kind of just made my own business decision and thought it'd be best for me to transfer um, out of Boise State. Before we depart, um, because a lot of times people get the wrong impression about transferring, and they think that it's yeah. a rejection, right? Um, yeah. I don't like it here anymore, or um, these guys lied to me, or and, and, and sometimes that happens. But I think most of the time, I would say probably eighty-five percent of the time, when a young man decides to transfer, it's usually for, frankly, what I would call common sense reasons, as opposed to emotional reasons. Um, yeah. Like you said, you all of a sudden notice that you know all the corners look like guys who played with the Seattle Seahawks. 
Okay. Yeah. Huh. Yeah, exactly. Okay, I don't look like that. <laughs> or yeah. you're you're a um you know, you're a six five, two hundred and forty one pound drop back passer and all of a sudden, you know, the new offensive coordinator comes in and everything's like run pass options, zone read, you know, like huh, I run about five one forty. So talk to me about the culture and the staff and even your own defensive coaches, you know, the guys that you dealt with in terms of the coordinators and position coaches. And as we noted, there was turnover because, and it's not negative, people love to go grab up Boise State coaches as we sort of went off, set off air. I mean, that's, if you want to be a highly thought of assistant, Boise is a good place to go because look around college football and even the NFL to some extent, and you'll find lots of guys who spent time at Boise. Exactly. Um, so talk to me a little bit about that place before we move on to your next football and collegiate home. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's a great place. I don't have any hard feelings for the staff there um, or the fans. Like I, like I said before, like I stand on it, um, that environment is one of a kind. Uh, the fans are one of a kind as well as the coaches are one of a kind. And there's a reason that they – are consistently ranked in the top 25 at the beginning of each season and consistently do well throughout the season. Um, so, you know, I, I have no hard feelings for them, and I think I took some of that Boise culture um, that was instilled in me, um, and I continue to take it to this day, um, just to be about about being very hardworking, bringing your pale, uh, your pale, what's it called, pale, like sack lunch to work, uh, putting on your hard hat, you know, just you have to continually go out every day and um, go to work because no one's going to give you anything, and you have to prove yourself each and every day um, in order to be where you want to be. Okay. And some of the guys who were on that staff when you got there and, and while you were there are essentially sort of the who's who of young up-and-coming coaches. Can you kind of walk yeah. us through some of the coaches that you dealt with and what you learned from them and what you remember of them? Yeah, um, Coach Ambrose was my corner coach. He was a very cool guy. Uh, Wait, cool Ashley guy. Ambrose, right? Yeah, Ashley Ambrose. Okay, once again, yeah. this is a nice steel old moment for me because I scouted Ashley Ambrose as a player. <laughs> but, yeah, continue. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. Um, so, no, he's he's a very cool guy. He definitely he played in the league for like 13 years, so he knows what he's talking about. Yep. Um, he cares about his players a lot. Then you have um, Coach Avalos. He's very analytical um, and is very, I don't want to say like military type, but he's, he knows what he wants and he knows what will work, and then he will not stop until he gets what he knows will put us in the best position to succeed. Um, yeah, the so term I would use is regimented. I would use yeah. regimented yeah. and structured to describe the way he coaches. Yes, and I mean it works. Like he's doing really well at Oregon, um, so he obviously knew what he was. I guess he knew what he's talking about, as opposed to defensive schemes and stuff like that. He's very, very knowledgeable of the game. Um, Coach Harson, uh, he's very cool as well. He relates to players well, um, as well as he runs just like Avalos. He runs a tight ship. Um, and if people yes. are kind of straying off, he makes sure they're back in line, which is why Boise's been the way they have um, while he's been at coach. Um, 
because he just runs a tight ship and tries to seek perfection, which is how it should be. Got it. I like the way you put that, right? The constant uh, struggle to try to achieve that would make, which may not even be achievable, but never stopping. Yeah. Uh, once again, exactly. let's get another feel old moment. I remember Brian Harson, of course, as a player. And I don't know if you've ever yeah. seen tape of, of Carson as a player. He wasn't the most talented cat in the world, but my God, did he. Like, you don't often see quarterbacks play the game angry. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, normally, normally when you think about quarterbacks, it's, yeah, sort of smooth, analytical, whatever. He was yeah. a guy that, like, played the game. Like, it was like a little teeny tiny defensive end playing quarterback. It was like, it was watching <laughs> Brian Harson play quarterback. Like, he was mad at the world, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, in a football way. I don't mean, like, angry as in, like, a angry person, but angry football. Like, like, I'll show you, you know, I don't know. There's something about guys like him, and I knew he was going to be a coach one day just watching him as a player. Like, some guys like Kellen Moore. I watched Kellen yeah. Moore play and thought that guy's going to be a coach one day. Once again, Boise just cradle of coaches. I mean, they've got a lot of guys. Um, so, yes, if you one day become another successful coach once your playing career is over, we'll sort of, sort of attach you to the, the Boise uh, coaching tree that is – it's up there with any name of program. Like, it's up there with any program. Yeah. Sure, today, there's so many good young coaches come out of there. It's a great culture. Yeah. And I wanted just to clarify, because a lot of times people say, oh, well, so-and-so transferred. Those bridges are unburned. Um, uh-huh. You clearly had a good experience for the most part there. You just needed, you know, an opportunity to show what you could do by getting more playing time. And that's, yeah. that's all there is to it. Okay. So now take me through that process. How did you find your next place to be an athlete and a place to be a student? So transferring out of Boise, um, the real the initial reason why I transferred, um, also because of playing time, but I thought that I was going to be able to go to the University of Baylor. Um, we were talking back and forth um, with a guy close to their staff, um, but when I came out, things fell through and I didn't get a chance to go to Baylor. Um, also out of there, UT, University of Texas wanted me to go there, and they would have gave me a scholarship the year after. So I got there in the spring. They would have gave it to me the following spring because they didn't have enough at the time. Uh, University of Oklahoma offered me a preferred walk-on, and then Duquesne offered me a full scholarship. Uh, one of the biggest things that I always had in my mind as a goal is for when I – left high school, I didn't want my parents to pay for anything. Um, I wanted to be out there as much as possible. Um, So that kind of cut UT and OU out. Even though it would have been fun to go there, I just didn't want to put my parents in that position. Even though they could have, I just, it was just an internal thing that I didn't want to do. Um, And as well as Duquesne, a great school, as well as full scholarship, great school, and um, it kind of gave me a chance to explore and live on the East Coast because I've never done that before. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so, yeah. And so going there, um, on top of all that, going there, I kind of really fell in love with the place. The coaches were great. Um, the team was very, very family-oriented. They had a bunch of guys from FBS schools transferring into there um, that were either there or coming in with me. So it was kind of like this, they were in the same boat that I was. So we could relate 
relate really well. Sure. Um, and as well as Duquesne's in the heart of downtown Pittsburgh. So that was yes. a cool experience. Yeah. Obviously a very different environment to some extent, um, Boise being in this sort of postcard version of America, yeah. right, where, um, you know, they say, you know, I mean, everything you see, like, you would think that everyone in Boise was preparing for the Olympics or something if you watch their sort of tourist thing because it's all athletics. It's all kayaking, yeah. biking, hiking, parasailing. Um, and then you get to Pittsburgh, right, a place where people yeah. – where a salad has meat on it and you eat fried whatever on top of fried the other thing. Um, yeah. Do you ever go to places like Vermonties and things like that? Yeah, yeah. For many, it's definitely it's like the not the go-to spot, but it's like what everybody in Pittsburgh says, like the restaurant in Pittsburgh to go. Uh, it's definitely different right. with the everything they put on the sandwiches. Yes, right. Everything is a good way to describe it because it basically is everything they can lay their hands on. Um, yeah, you you have and and of course, speaking of football culture, Western Pennsylvania is not shy about telling you about its place in football history. I mean, clearly you've got Aliquippa High School, which gave us, well, a long list of guys, but just sticking to Hall of Famers, guys like Tony Dorsett and Mike Ditka, uh, yeah. is no longer quite what it was at its peak, but at one point Pitt was a team that was consistently in the national championship race uh, and just not far from that area, that sort of that circle, um, you've got, you can, you know, walk, a few blocks this way, and that's where Dan Marino went to high school. So, yeah, a lot, right? So, uh, tell me about what it was like learning this new system and new location. And once again, like we talked about before, where did you start on the depth chart, and how did you navigate your way? Um, I think going in, I had the same mindset um that I did going into college you know it's just a, a new place I just had to prove myself all over again um which wasn't anything new to me um going there's definitely a lot colder than Boise was which was definitely <laughs> not what I expected the east coast cold is a lot different than the west coast colds um yep. cuz you have the three rivers like in, encompassing or encircling uh downtown Pittsburgh um so having that um, was definitely something to get used to, just go to the store and get more coats and stuff. <laughs> but, um, no, it was definitely um, definitely different, but I adjusted very well. Um, and then football-wise, like the coaches said, or like I said, when I first went there, it's very family-oriented. So when the coaches – when I went there, the coaches were very invested in me um, and helped me, I guess, uh, adjust very well within their system and stuff. It wasn't as complex as Boise's system. All we really ran okay. was main and cover two. <laughs> uh, oh, but okay. it was definitely, yeah, it was definitely um, cool. So, Okay. And as I asked you sort of before about who caught your eye when you were playing high school ball in Texas and who caught your eye when you were playing, you know, what I call power six ball at Boise. Who are some of the guys that you lined up either with or against that caught your eye when you started playing in the, in the NEC? 
Um, well, I think the best guy I played or played were on my team. So Nahari Crawford, he just got signed um, to the Tiger Cats. I'm pretty sure Hamilton Tiger Cats. Uh, yeah, mm-hmm. DJ Hines at running back. Um, oh yeah. Yeah. yeah, basically every award that a player can make or can get. Um, and we also had, like I was saying, transfers from FBS schools. So Dominique Thielen, who was an Illinois transfer. We had um, Dante Mayfield, who was a UCF transfer, as well as we had Kellen Taylor, who played both basketball and football at Duquesne um, before moving to full football his senior year, this past senior year. Uh, so just having a different plethora of receivers to go against with different skill sets and different um, strengths and weaknesses definitely helped me um, improve my game to be even better than it was before when I first got there. Okay. And so by being in a system where there was less mental load, sort of, I'm not quite going back to high school really, but, but less, there's less for you to do before you hit the field in terms of knowing, you know, what rotations and when you're switching responsibilities and you're not doing all that. Not as much, obviously, as when you were yeah. at Boise. What, what changes or how did that change the way you played? What difference did that make in your approach to playing the game, the fact that you weren't tricking the other team very often with, you know, coverages? You were just sort of lining up and cut playing. Um. Sorry, could you repeat the question? It kind of glitched out a little bit. Oh, okay. So, sorry. I was saying that now that you went from, you know, a place where it was a fair amount of disguise, like when you were at Boise, you guys ran a, a lot. You ran a yeah. lot of different coverages. You put it out. Now you're going to a situation that's it's not quite high school, but it's, you know, it's, it's getting closer to the just line up and play approach. What difference uh-huh. does that make? in the way that you played? Uh, like, how did that change what you did and how you did it? Yeah, um, it was a lot less, I guess a lot less thinking, a lot less complex, like you were saying. So it was not as mental, but more so just the other team really knew what we were doing every time. Like, we just line up in it right. almost. We tried to, we tried to try to disguise it sometimes, but not really. Um, so I think it made it a little bit harder in the sense that they knew where we were going and what we were going to do. So like if we were in man, they, they obviously knew that. So they'd run like man beaters. And if we were cover two, right. they could run cover three beaters and stuff. Um, so it was it was definitely different. Um, I mean, I think, I think we should have disguised a little bit more, but um, you know, the plan The plan worked. Um, we won uh, the conference in 2018 and then went to the second round, which any, no other Duquesne team had done. Um, so you right. had a different approach and not disguising it. Um, but it just made the, dog, it made the dogs on the team just really buckle down and you know, just play. So Okay. Yeah, that's 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 an interesting contrast between those two programs. There's a lot of things that yeah. I'm assuming were probably pretty similar, but that's the most obvious difference because, I mean, Boise is probably up there with 
Virginia Tech, TCU, Alabama. I mean, there's a handful of college teams that probably, I mean, it's not quite the NFL level, but run enough different LSU, you know, run enough different kinds of things in their coverages where a lot of times quarterbacks aren't quite sure what they're seeing. Um, Clearly, as we just pointed out, that was not the case. I mean, any quarterback that didn't know what he was saying, he was facing you guys, probably shouldn't have been playing. Yeah. Okay. So to make up for that, I'm assuming you guys really had to work on technique and just getting physically better. Yeah, yeah, we did. Um, uh, and that started, like, with the off season as well as in the, the summer program and stuff like that. Um, so just – and then, obviously, in the individual drills and stuff, it was really just perfecting, so say, cover two, perfecting the cover two technique and then jamming and sinking or man – perfecting that in the press as well as off-man techniques. And um, I think a big thing that helped, obviously helps me and helped the team was um, the film study that we did individually and as a team really helped us dissect what the offense was going to do. Even though they knew what coverage we were in, we also knew kind of what plays were coming out of different formations and stuff like that. Even though they had an advantage with kind of seeing our coverage, at the same time we had an advantage kind of seeing what plays they were going to run. So, Okay. Got it. So you're out there. It doesn't take you long to acclimate, obviously. You became one of the more important parts of the defensive secondary darn near, darn near immediately. And mm. talk, to me, talk to me or give me an idea of what things you did in the weight room, obviously, in other places, to make up for the fact that, you know, you weren't, you weren't really fooling anybody, as you just pointed out. Uh, you obviously have been in a big-time program before uh, where nutrition and speed and everything else. Uh, talk to me about that, or give me an idea of what goes on, compare and contrast, I guess is what I'm saying. Uh, so strength and conditioning, uh, nutrition, all that stuff at what I call a power six program. And then when you found yourself at a very good and, as you just said, having sort of a historically good run at the uh, FCS level, what things were similar and what things might have been different in how you guys were fed and worked out and things like that? I think, well, I guess the similarities, um, I would say, are it's a – uh, fully, fully staffed, strength staff, as well as we had um, top of the line um, athletic trainers. Um, Steve, one of the main guys is Steve LeBate. He was with uh, the Carolina Panthers first in, and then South Dakota State and then came to us. Um, so I think staff-wise, we really had kind of similar um, types of talent. But I think the biggest difference was – that Duquesne doesn't have as much funding as a Boise State does um, and as much pull within the university. So I think that the biggest difference is it was more individual, on the individual to get the meals in, more on the individual to do extra work. Because at Boise, um, they'd, give you, they'd give you food. They'd give you, um, give you workouts to do outside of – the program, 
the strength program when you're not working out. So I think at Duquesne it's more um, just a different type. It's more individual-based um, and more on the individual to work harder to be where you want to be as opposed to having the resources that Boise has. Okay. And what did your individual work and your individual commitment to getting better, because you clearly not only do what's asked of you in terms of strength, conditioning, nutrition, you clearly go beyond that. You, you draw a bar for yourself that's above the bar that's set by others. What did that allow you to do, your approach to all that, to the physical preparation and obviously mental preparation, technique preparation, but you, you do extra work. A lot of it is shows. Uh, what does that allow you to do, putting in that extra work? Uh, well, I think putting in that extra work helps you be that much better on the field and have that much more confidence on the field that you know in the back of your mind that you've put in all the work you could have possibly done um, in the off season, in the summers, um, as well as at home when people are resting. Like, you still continue. It's a continuous grind. Um, I continually want to be better than I was yesterday and try to be as great as I can be. Um, so I think having that and having done that and having that mindset um, going into games, um, it's not really stressful. Like, people always say that they get nervous and stuff um, in games because I guess it's more pressure, but I really don't think it's that much pressure because if you do all you can do and do all you know you should have done um, in the off season and in your free time, then you just – have to go out and just perform. Kind of natural. Got it. Got it. Um, one last thing on the weight room, and so the the actual factuals of your physical body. Um, as I'm sure many people have told you, you now are an entrepreneur, right? You are the the chairman and CEO of Reed Harrison uh, DeCrow Enterprises, and <laughs> and uh, you know the. The, the shareholders and everyone else uh, are going to be very interested in, you know, the, the product, and the product is you. Uh, so we've talked a little bit off there, and, you know, I'm a former undersized safety, so I always root for defensive backs, 5'10 and shorter. So you made the club because you're five minutes, nine and a half, and most recently weighed in at, you said, 186.4, so about 100, almost 186 and a half pounds, and you said your goal is to be almost to about 190, if I remember correctly. Yes. Yes. Okay. And, you know, sadly, you know, you can't get any taller uh, or not much taller at this point, but you don't need to. You, like we said about Russell Wilson, one's like he went to bed six foot three and woke up five ten and five eight. He's been this height, you know, throughout and managed to be a baller throughout. So I don't worry so much about those things. You, you, did, you didn't go to bed six foot two and then suddenly wake up this height. So yeah. uh, the weight room, and technique and all stuff is a great equalizer. So tell me about the weight room. Um, I mean, everyone has things that they like, love, and things that they don't love quite so much but do anyway. I was a big time, I was like, I love the military press. Uh, I was a, a big time squat guy. Bench, yeah. Um, I, was, uh, I liked deadlifting. Uh, I wasn't a huge fan of uh, Power Clean. I mean, I did it because it was part of the program, but I, I didn't look forward to it. I wasn't, oh, boy, we get to Power Clean. That wasn't me. Um, when you go into the weight room, I mean, everyone has favorites. What were some of the things that you really, 
you know, loved and, and you felt like helped you? And then what were some of your actual personal records in some of your lists? Um, I like doing explosive work, so band work, plyometrics, um, different stuff that I think relates to the field, um, ankle mobility, just different stuff like that to kind of help my explosiveness on the field because I think um, ex- if you're explosive on the field, then that kind of – the more explosive you are, the better you are in the field. That's what I'm trying to say. Okay. And I know you have a little bit of a track background. You're, you're obviously a football player. Uh, did you – do you did you also continue to do speed work even after you stopped running track or or what was your approach regarding that? Yes, I continue to do track workouts um on my own and then through the strength program we did track workouts. Um so I think that definitely I feel like that's a key um aspect of a strength program is having that track workout and track different type of stuff to do because Speed kills. So, yes, that's right. Uh, I know all too well. After being an undersized safety whose personal record in the forty is about four six seven, uh, they don't love they don't love small and slow. So yes, I I can attest that speed is a big deal. And if you don't have it, there's you can study hard, you can do whatever, but it's hard to overcome that. So. In terms of, sort of the actual factuals, do you have a rough idea of what you actually might run the 40 in? Uh, I know I'm going to run it in four fours. I'm not sure. Um, oh, okay. I'm shooting sure at a four four two um, right now. But, um, okay. So. All right. Well, that that'll get it done. I'll be honest. Yeah. I would not have guessed that that fast. I mean, you look fast on tape, but I was thinking like. Yeah, high four four is low four five. If you run four four two one, that means that my scouting scouting eye is now broken, and two that means that which is good. I mean, good for bad for me, good for you. Um, that's impressive. I just I'm mean, just just to be honest, I did four four two. People realize how fast four four two is. Um, that's really 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 fast. That's that's like even at your position, which is a speed position, that's a top ten percentile. You know, forty time. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm um, I'm training at Michael Johnson right now, um, and I have been training ah. there. And I've just uh, consistent work with them, and then just knowing the tips and tricks that they've had of the guys that come through, have come through there and done well at the combine. Just kind of soaking in all the information I can, and then coming home and working extra um, each and every day. Um, I feel like I'm gonna run really well and test really well. Okay. Well, that's exciting because obviously at this point you're sort of half football player, half track athlete as you, you get ready with these things. Yeah. And luckily, like I said, you actually have a track background, so I guess it helps. Uh, before we move too much forward, I want to spend a little time on the, the sort of ending of your collegiate career. Uh, take me through the goals you had coming into your senior year, things you wished to accomplish, and how close you came to achieving those things. Going into senior year, I wanted to – so my junior year, I I feel like I did really well. I didn't let up a touchdown, nor did I let up um, a yard of the 15 yards in man coverage. Um, so going into my senior year, I really wanted to focus on getting turnovers because um, you could have – if someone has – I think it was like Dion's quote. If you have 10, 10 picks and five tackles and 100 tackles and no picks, the person with 10 picks is going to get the more more publicity. 
So um, going into my senior year, I really wanted to get more turnovers um, to kind of elevate my game because everybody wants a person who can create turnovers on their team. Um, so kind of try, just kind of taking that next step in that aspect, and I feel like I accomplished that uh, individually. And then um, team-wise, I wanted to go farther than we did in 2018, but we obviously didn't do that um, to injuries and just different stuff. Um, so that was unfortunate, but individually, I feel like I achieved my goals. Excellent. And take me through the sort of early part of postseason when you start hearing about opportunities to play and all-star games, things like that. There's decisions to be made. There's, you know, obviously, if it's a senior bowl, there's no decision to be made, you know, at least other than the player or not. Like, either you feel like it benefits you or it doesn't, you go. But below that, you've got East West Shrine, you've got things like NFLPA, you've got College Gridiron Showcase, FCS Senior Scout Bowl, uh, yeah. Tropical, there's a bunch of different things out there. How did you navigate that, and which ones appealed to you, and how did you decide? Well, the CGS, um, multiple reasons. One, it's in Fort Worth, so it was very close. I think it was like 20 minutes away from my house. That so was definitely a benefit, so my family could come um, and watch practices and stuff like that. And then two, it's, I've talked to various people, and it was, I think it's like the top, I guess one of the top four bowls or something like that. Uh, well, it is, I guess it is one of the top four bowls for senior post-bowl games. You have the NFLPA, East-West, Senior Bowl, and then um, I think the fourth is a college grind showcase. Um, and then I think going there, it really uh, solidified my thoughts about going to it and the reasons why I went to it because there was plenty of scouts there. I think it was like 31 or 32 teams uh, as well as CFL teams scouts that were there, um, and it ran very well in the sense that the director made sure everything was in order as well as the staff made sure everything was in order. Um, I think it was a really, it was a really fun process um, and experience for me um, to compete against people across, across the nation that were, or that are considered some of the best receivers in the nation, so. Mm -hmm. And I, you, you anticipated. You, you take me in the direction of where I wanted to go. And once again, I'm asking you to throw your scouting hat, hat on a little bit. Who were some of the players there that caught your eye? And, yes, guys that you may have covered or even, I guess, maybe even some of your teammates, but guys that you said, oh, okay, that guy, okay, that, guy's, that guy can play. Uh, one of the guys that caught my eye the most, I can't remember his name, but he's a receiver from Southern University. Uh, he's like six four, two, probably yeah. 2'15", 2'20". Um, he moved very well yeah. and very fluid. I didn't think he'd move that well being that big, um, but he did. Uh, I think that was one of the main guys that really stood out to me the most um, from the receiver side from, those, from the time I was there at CGS. Okay. And did you get to have any conversations with NFL teams? Yes, I did. I talked to – well, I did a reaction test for the Cowboys that the Saints and I think it's the Giants use. Um, and then I also had an interview with the Buccaneers and then the Giants. Excellent. That's 
that's more well, it's good to hear that you're getting, and that's the whole point of these experiences. I mean, it's great to, you know, get a pair of sweats and some coaching, and I want to spend some time on the coaching, and just yeah. like I said, to measure yourself against this new measuring stick. But when it comes down to it, the main thing is that exposure and a little bit of hands-on, you know, time spent with staffs, you know, and if, if you don't get that, even though it can otherwise be a great experience, then to some extent you haven't gotten the main, you know, you've gotten the size, but you didn't get the main dish. So uh, what kind of feedback or what kind of feeling did you have in your, your time with these teams? Um, I think I think the interview wasn't necessarily about feedback in a sense. It was kind of they just wanted the background information on me. Um, mm-hmm. They asked me, like, where I'm from, what school I went to, why I transferred, just, like, stuff like that. So it really wasn't um, about feedback, I guess, in a sense. Um, they just sure. To, I, asked, I asked them what I could do to continue to get better. They were just saying um, just continue to play well throughout the days that you're at this camp. Um, so I guess that's the feedback that I got from them, but it was more so of a background interview as opposed to a lengthier one. Right, right. I got you. I mean, and that's, and I'll just be very clear and honest with you. You may know this already, but the first three or four rounds of the NFL draft belong to GMs and, you know, directors of college scouting, right? Um, And they generally focus on for the most part, guys from big schools. Luckily, it's not all that. You know, there's a little bit of flavor in there than from other places, but most of those guys are going to be big schools, blah, blah, blah. In the mid-rounds, the scouts have more input. And in some places, you know, it depends on the the team, but some places, the sixth, seventh round, and obviously what I call the eighth round, the undrafted signing period, very often belongs to the scouts. And area scouts, particularly in the end of, you know, later part of day three and into what I call the eighth round, they sort of take over to some extent. So they have to have current information because it's a – once the draft ends, because the draft is very orderly, right? We know who's going and when and how much time they have. But then what I call the eighth round rolls around, and it's a free-for-all. It is, you know, just a pile. And your phone blows up, and there's, you know, and, or if you're an agent, your agents are sometimes both your agent and your, and your phone are blowing up, and there's a bunch of different teams all trying to get to you. And you can sometimes, Tony Romo is a great example, be in a better situation by being an undrafted free agent than being drafted. If, if Tony Romo had been drafted late by, I don't know, name a team, he would have had to go to a had a great opportunity for him.
God. 